Welcome into the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is on the show with me as always. And it's bye week, Eric. Oregon comes out of their first four games, three and one. Uh, we're going to talk at length about the Stanford victory. We're going to go over uh, the positives, um, how you should be feeling about this performance, um, some concerns that come with it. We'll highlight on a couple guys that I think were really impressive in that game. We'll break down a verbal commitment that the Oregon Ducks had this week, what that means for Oregon moving forward. Injury news, some some potential star players coming back from injury soon. Uh, we've got the start time for Cal, and it's a big deal, and we'll explain why. And then uh, bowl projections are starting to, to take shape, and we're getting a good feel of who's good, who's not, now that you know teams have played four games sometimes. A couple of them have played in three. Um, and believe it or not, there could be like nine teams potentially playing for bowl games for Oregon. So uh, a lot to get to on this bye week podcast. And I, I can't, I can't tell you, just like the team, I'm, I'm ready for this bye week this week. Yeah. You know, like it just like it sometimes it hits the team at the right time. It hits, uh, the two of us at the right time too. It was a long trip. We drove down to Stanford and back. Not complaining because it was a really fun trip and we had a great time, but uh, we're getting too old for, for a little bit of that, I think. And, uh, <laughs> my body is feeling it right now. I'm sure it's nowhere near uh, what the players in this team are feeling, not even like a one one-thousandth of what they're feeling, because that was a physical, tough, tough game against Stanford. And they come out, obviously, with a huge win um, and are very deserving of this bye week. You know, it, 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 Like I said, sometimes it, it varies on whether or not the bye week hits you at the right time. Sometimes it's too early, and you wish, gosh, two weeks later, you're going, man, I really wish it was right now, just because we were, you know, you had the momentum going and, and you didn't have any injuries to nurse, but that's not this team. I, I asked a couple of players after Saturday's win um, over Stanford about the, just kind of the timing of this, and it was, you, you know, everybody's like, yeah, this is perfect. We need this right now. We've, we're banged up. We just won an emotional game. Um, the next game against Cal is going to be another physical, physical game. I don't know if people have watched much of California, but they play very similar to Stanford, especially defensively. That's a very physical defense. Evan Weaver is probably one of the best players defensively in the country, certainly in the Pac-12. It's going to be a tough game. So the timing of that is this bye week, I think, is tremendous. It's perfect. And, uh, you know, they go into it again with some momentum, uh, a, a win over a rival that they hadn't beaten in four, you know, since 2015. I mean, this is all significant stuff. And, and now they're able to nurse those injuries, rest up a little bit, and then prepare for another stretch run where, you know, this next stretch of conference games is where things really, really pick up a little bit here. You know, they, they play Cal, Colorado, Washington. Washington State and USC before they have their second bye week before they play Arizona. So these next five games, I think, are going to tell us an awful lot about this team. And uh, again, I think this, the timing of this bye week is, is just about perfect. Yeah, it, it certainly is setting itself up to be um, a, a really critical stretch for the Oregon Ducks the next four or five weeks of the football season. But let's let's go back. To the first four, and in particular, let's look at you know Oregon's 21 to six victory at Stanford. And I think going into this week, not and if you were told if you, if you were out of the country in Japan and you didn't get a chance to see the football game, and all you could see was the score, and you were you were told that Oregon beat Stanford by two scores uh, the, on their at their stadium, and Oregon's defense completely dominated Stanford's offense, you would walk away probably feeling like, 
all right, like that's that is exactly what we needed. We needed a two score win. We dominated a rival. We snapped a, a a losing streak of three straight against Stanford. I feel really good. You know, if, if that's what the fan base would have been told without seeing everything play out, I think everyone would be ecstatic. And unfortunately, that's just not the case because. You look at this football game, and yeah, Oregon went went down to Stanford, and they dominated. I think it's I think you can say they they dominated this football game from about halfway through the first quarter through the rest of the game, and the post game locker room was juiced. We didn't yep. get to go in there, but we could hear it, and it was it was like you're at that club and you're trying to get in, and there's a bouncer who's out the, out the door not letting you in because. And you're just you're just dying to get in because it sounds like it's a heck of a time, you know, a heck of a party going on inside that room, and that's what it was. I mean, guys were fired up. You know, you could hear the celebration, you could hear the the, the team singing the fight song, you could you could hear everything coming through the walls. That's how loud they were and how juiced up they were. And so the team itself was was fired up for the win. But I think you you from a fan perspective, from our perspective at the media, we we walked away thinking like. This game probably should have been even worse in favor of Oregon. You know, why did Oregon only score three touchdowns? They probably could have t- tacked on maybe one or two more. And, you know, this game could have been a 35 to six or a, a 28 to six victory, um, because of just some struggles on the offensive side of the football. Yeah. And there, there are struggles there and, and the run game wasn't great. I think anybody that watched that came away feeling that way. Uh, C.J. Verdell ran it 24 times, which is the most Oregon has run a running back all season, but he only gained 82 yards. It's like a 3.4 yards per carry average, which is not great. I mean, really not that not that inspiring in terms of. I mean, you're hoping for that number to be in the five and six range in college. If you're if you're having a you know a really good running back, really big numbers, that that's usually five six maybe. You know, some of the top guys are seven or eight yards, and you know that's that's maybe too much to ask, I think, for for this group, but. Um, the running game just wasn't up to par. And I think Mario Cristobal said that exact thing after the game. And, and I think, again, the frustrating thing, we talked about this a little bit after the game on Saturday, is that for all the shortcomings of the running game, the passing game was really pretty dynamic. Yeah. Um, and they just, But the issue was they just didn't throw it very much. They, they ran the ball. Uh, you know, they, they, Technically, they had 30 t- attempts, but... Uh, 25 five, of those were, were carries were, by running backs. Yeah, and, and five of those were sacks or, or plays where Herbert had to step up in the pocket. I think he got tackled for like a one-yard gain once um, uh, when he was scrambling out of the pocket because Stanford did do a good job of pressuring him. But, yeah, they, they, they basically – it was 50-50. You know, it was 25-24 in terms of uh, the number of rushes to passes, and I think you could very easily have seen that number gone in the – you know, I think if they would have been 32 pass attempts and 18 rushes, people would be feeling a little bit better about things because – Stanford just didn't have an answer for Justin Herbert. And I think yeah. that's the thing. You, you come into this bye week going, okay, let's help everybody heals up. But maybe there's a sense of – and we'll get to some injuries in a second here, but there are some players going back that could help that pass attack and maybe make it even more valuable and more dynam- uh, dynamic. But uh, you're, you're also hoping that they go into this bye week and kind of maybe do a little bit of soul-searching offensively because – Gosh, it just doesn't feel – it feels like there's so much more there. It feels like there's so, a, a potential to score so many more points, um, to move the ball so much more effectively, to uh, not just be limited to three scoring drives. I think there was – I mean, they, they had a number of times that they were, you know, in position that it looked like they were going to add to that total, and they yeah. just didn't. 
So yeah, there, I mean, that, that's unfortunately kind of an underlying thing as we come into this bye week is, gosh, this defense, and we talked, we talked all about it on Saturday, how great they were. I mean, we'll talk about that, I'm sure, more here on this podcast, but just some of the stuff with the offense is, is a little disappointing, uh, a little frustrating, and, and certainly I don't think detracts from the fact that they dominated this game, and I, I do want to you know, reiterate the fact that I think they dominated Stanford. I, I think that was what happened on Saturday. I think they were the better team, and I don't think after about, like you said, the midway point of that first quarter, once Oregon kind of got moving a little bit, that there was really any question who was going to win this football game. At the same time, when you dominate a game and you win 21-6, to I think that sort of maybe leaves a little bit uh, left to be desired, especially from the fans who are, you know, and, and, and media too, probably guilty of it, that are used to seeing Oregon score 42, 49 points when they dominate an opponent. And it felt like some of that was, it felt like there was room for it, it to be somewhere in that range. And it just didn't get there. And it felt like it was almost, almost a choice that they didn't get to that. You know, in, in, in a weird way, I almost felt like they decided that they weren't going to try to score at that level, that they were comfortable and content. Um, you know, settling kind of with where they were. And it, it, it was, it just, it's a weird sort of feeling coming out of this game. Cause again, they dominated, they beat Stanford. They hadn't done that in a long time. Everybody's fired up at the same time. It, it makes sense that there's some kind of like, boy, it feels like it could have been a much more, it feels like it should feel a little bit better in a weird way. It's just a strange sort of outcome in, in, in some way. Last season, Justin Herbert averaged 7.8 yards per attempt, which was 36th in the country. And, Ironically enough, this year he's 36th in the country at yards per attempt. Um, but that average is, has gone up almost a full yard. It's at 8.7 now. Um, so I, 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 when Herbert is throwing the football, you're, you're getting a significantly larger chunk of yardage, uh, per pass attempt than you are running the ball. And, and yes, like that's, like, that's normal. Like you're, you're always going to get more yards, you know, per running attempt than you are, or third, per passing attempt than you are per running play. But the issue is, is that, you know, or, with Herbert at quarterback, Oregon is averaging 8.7 yards per per pass attempt. And on the ground, it's just 4.42. I mean, it's double. I mean, you you look at some of the best teams in the country and – who can run the ball and throw the football and the teams that are, you know, the teams with the high profile offenses like Clemson, they are averaging 6.59 yards per running play and passing the football. Trevor Lawrence per yards attempt uh, is up there as well at um, 8.7 with Justin Herbert. So they're almost, you know, like the passing is only a couple yards higher than, um, the running and you're just not seeing that with with Oregon's run game and I think the issue is, is that I, you're right you'd like to see you have one of the best players in the country in Justin Herbert your run game is not obviously clicking and you still have to run some plays to you know keep teams balanced and and try and continue to to work out those issues during live ball situations when you can. But at the at the same time, you maybe want to shade a little bit more on the side of letting Herbert throw a little bit more until that offense gets figured out, until things get figured out if it does, because he's your best player, and and when it's when it's just a handoff, you're you're basically 
neutralizing the guy that has the biggest impact on, on your offense. And there's going to be a game this season where Oregon's going to need to score 45 points to win. Like, I just don't, I mean, I, I have ultimate confidence in this defense, but the reality is, is that they're human and that there will be a game or two in this, in this football season where Oregon's defense won't be as, as good as they've been the first four weeks and the offense will have to carry the, the load. And I'm not sure if they're going to be in that position where if they play a Washington, can they score 45 points? Yeah, so certainly a good point. And, and I think one thing I want to address as well is, is there's a lot of people asking why Justin Herbert isn't running the football. Um, and, and you go back and I watched quite a bit of the game again last night and there were certainly huge holes for him to run through, but we also have to remember a couple of years ago, he went off running in a game against California and was lost for five games of the season. And, and all the fans were, ex- why, why the heck are we running the football? Exactly. So, so if this is, so just, just in terms of that narrative, I, I, there's things I disagree with and how things are being handled in terms of maybe the offense and, the, you know, Marcus Arroyo and, and Jim Mastro and Mario Chris are paid a heck of a lot more, know a heck of a lot more about football than I do. But there are certain things that I don't necessarily agree with. One thing that I don't have an issue with at all is not running Justin Herbert because if he, sure he might pick up 10 yards, but what's, what's the collateral damage if he takes another shot and is then out for four to five weeks and now you were without your quarterback that doesn't make any sense to me and then people, there was a bunch of people complaining about how oh man the running game would be better if he if he was the one handling the football well he's not going to he, he just simply he, he won't be the one carrying the football and maybe there's going to be instances later in the season where there's more on the line and it, it, you know he needs to make a play with his legs and he'll take off and, and try to do that but to, to expect him on like an RPO situation, you know, maybe to keep the football and, and run up the field and possibly take a shot to me feels kind of honestly just sort of silly. Um, and, and so I, I don't, and I don't think that's where the issue is. Like we're saying, like, I, like the, the issue to me is that they, they should have Herbert throwing the ball more often. And, and frankly, like the run game, I don't, th- I, I, I feel more and more after watching the game a, a second time or part of the game a second time that, the large part of the issues are at running back with the running backs not finding the hole and running into the backs of the offensive linemen, not seeing that there's, I mean, there were plays where, you know, again, I don't want to like drag CJ Verdell, but there were plays where he, he could have made, I don't know, a 25 yard run. If he just runs, you know, if he just cuts it back or if he just, you know, cuts it up sooner, Um, his largest run game of the whole game was 11 yards. And there were some huge holes there that certainly felt like, there was an availability to run more. And so it'll be interesting to see, I think, going forward um, with that run game, how much do they continue to rely upon Verdell like they did? Again, 24 to 25 rush attempts came from him. Travis Dye had the other. It only went for one yard. We saw Darian Felix and Travis Dye be pretty explosive at times in non-conference play. We even saw a little bit of Sean Dollar. Cyrus Habibi, the keel, was hurt for this game. But I don't know. I'll be, I'll be very interested to see going forward, how much they continue to rely upon Verdell. Does he continue to, does he play at a higher level? There were times last year where I thought he was really, really effective, but honestly, this season, he's been, I think, fairly underwhelming. I, and people are going to ask, well, why do we not see Travis Dyer? Why do we not see Darian Felix? And, and this is kind of, this is what makes it so confusing is because Felix is by far, or not Felix, Verdell is by far the, the team's best pass pro running back on the roster. Like by far. Like there's there's not another guy on the roster at running back that knows the position, knows the the blocking, knows where he's supposed to be and then can go out and execute it. 
and protect Justin Herbert as that last line of defense and then Verdell. And so that's why he's out there. But then what's strange is that, okay, he's the best pass pro guy. Then throw the football a ton. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's where, that's where it gets confusing for me is that it's by, it's, it's very evident that he is the best pass protection running back on the roster. And I, I think he's also the best runner, but there's, there's some kind of disconnect between him finding the hole and, and, and on run plays because they're there and he either is a, a tad second too early, a tad second too late, uh, or he just completely misses it in, entirely. And, you know, a, a run of 15 yards gets morphed down to a, a run of two yards, three yards, maybe four or five. And that, you know, that, that's what's got has to get figured out during the bye week is what can Oregon do to fix this run game? Because, look, I think if they can, if they can fix the run game and they can get their averages up and, you know, it can be a, a deal where they're consistently running and, and running the football well, all of a sudden this offense goes from being potentially good to potentially elite. Like Herbert back there slinging it with the threat of teams saying, hey, we can't drop eight into coverage or we can't drop six into coverage because we've got we've got to stop the run. That makes, you know, Oregon's best player have even more opportunities uh, to, to to just, you know, carve up defenses. And and I don't want to make it all against Verdell. I thought the offensive line. Was, it's not. No, I'm not trying to say it's, it's. No, no, I know it's not. I, I, but I feel like I might, it might have come across that way how I was saying it. I, but I want to highlight the fact that I thought the offensive line had had some great moments, and I thought there was a lot more available for Drew Dell if he hits the hole. But there were also moments for Stanford, who has some really good players up front. I mean, Chris Tuho, uh had a tremendous game in, in terms of rushing the pass. Was also pretty active in the run game for Stanford. Um, that that certainly plays into it too. And but but. You know, the, the offensive line probably was not quite its best. It makes sense that they had Jake Hansen wasn't playing and Calvin Throckmorton had to slide in. That means Brady Aiello, who's not starting, not, probably for a reason because he's not the team's right, best right tackle. Uh, it makes sense that there's some issues. One area to transition a little bit here, just to talk about some, some positives we saw. Um, Penny Sewell is just continues to be an absolute beast. I mean, I don't know, I don't know how else you want to describe it. I mean, uh, he had, I think, 11 knockdowns against Montana. He had five against Stanford. You go back and watch some of the, the things he did against, again, a really big, strong, athletic Stanford front, and he just dominates people. He, he's done it every week. You go back and watch the Auburn game, there are plays where he's just pancaking and shoving dudes down left and right in that game. Uh, Oregon has a really, really good offensive line. It's a veteran offensive line, a lot of seniors start. I think it's pretty clear to me right now, though, that the best player on this offensive line is not a senior. It's a sophomore. It's Penny Sewell. Could you say he's the best player on the team? That's an interesting question. I, I would say maybe he's the best, best player on the team, but not the most valuable, just because the quarterback position is so much more valuable in, in a certain light. But he certainly deserves to be in that discussion. And he is the way he's playing right now. He's going to be, I feel pretty comfortable saying he should be an all-conference player. And honestly, if, if you know, the national attention, you know, is, is what it should be, I think he's going to be an All-American candidate. And, and I honestly, through four games, he probably deserves to be on a first or second team All-American, you know, list. You know, he's that he's been that good and that dominant. And 
that's somebody that you can rely upon now for this year, certainly next year. But boy, you, you're, I don't think he's going to be a player you have for four years. I think it's become <laughs> more, more I think that's pretty obvious. But more and more likely, this guy is this guy is 95 percent, uh, you know, going to be out the door uh, after his junior season. Because gosh, you have to think with just how how good he is in both the run and the pass. This is a guy who's going to be a top five, top ten draft pick. And you know, again, you know we. Talked about on Saturday how you have to relish how good this defense has been. Relish how good Penny Sewell is at left tackle. I, you know, Oregon's had some really great offensive linemen come through the doors. A lot of guys who've had success in the NFL. Still a lot of guys who are currently having some success there. Uh, there's a good chance you look up in, you know, a handful of years and, and he's considered the best that's come out of Oregon. And you just, you just look at him physically. He's so, he's a huge guy who moves really well and is so mean out there and is just, he's just throwing dudes around left and right. Yeah, he he is by and far incredibly talented. And yeah. I think a big reason why Oregon's screen game has taken such an uptick in usage and impact is because of him. I mean, if you I think this is just a total guess, but I would I would be shocked if Oregon's frequency of running screens to his side of the field was below seventy percent. Like I, I feel like almost the majority of their screens go to his side. They go on the wide side of the field and um too and, and almost every time they work. Like that's yeah. what that's what's impressive is that you know, you may know it's coming and he still goes out gets out there and just crushes people. Um Javon Holland is also a guy I think we need to talk about because I think going into the year and it's still the case, but going into the year this this was this is Troy Dye's defense. He is the best player on the team. He has to be able to dominate every game if Oregon's defense is going to play well. And I don't think that's the case anymore in terms of Oregon doesn't need Troy Dye to to play at an A plus level for them to be able to have a dominant performance. It, it would certainly help. It would make things incredibly helpful. And this is still his defense, but. I think what's made Troy Dye's play improve and what's made this defense improve is that they now seem to have a superstar at all three levels of the defense. Jordan Scott at nose tackle, Troy Dye inside at linebacker, and now Javon Holland on the back end at safety. Because Holland again had another interception. Uh, He led the team in tackles with nine. He's second on the team in, in the in the year in tackles, 25. Troy Dye is 25th. Um, you know, Oregon's Oregon's guys around Troy Dye have greatly improved, and I think Holland is the one that's improved the most. And they played four games, and I'm I'm getting to the point where, just like you said with Penny Sewell, Holland might, might not be here for four years because he's he's that good, and the NFL will come calling sooner than later. Absolutely. And I think it's been what's been impressive is we knew he could play the pass. And one thing I want to say here is he's basically playing nickel and Verona McKinley's playing safety. If you watch where they're aligned most of the time. And that's kind of an interesting thing because that wasn't really talked about too much coming into the season. And, and it's something we've seen, I think, pretty much every single week. And that speaks again to his athletic ability at six foot one, one ninety five, that he's out there basically covering guys for the entirety of the game. Sometimes he does, sometimes there's, you know, they, they move things around a little bit and he, he plays, you know, back at, at the back end of the defense, but he is, 
yeah, you're right. He's just been tremendous and he's in on so many plays, uh, you know, at the line of scrimmage. And, um, last season, there were times where he wasn't very good, you know, in run support or, or he missed tackles or took bad angles. You don't see any of that this year. He's flying around drilling dudes. I had a couple of times yesterday where Stanford ran a screen and, uh, Holland just came up and blew the thing up in the backfield. And, there are times where, you know, people make a play over the middle and, and Nick Pickett, I think, has been a really nice enforcer over there, making things difficult. He's not afraid to hit people, but Javon Holland has stepped up in that way too. And when you couple his ability to be kind of an enforcer back there to make plays in the open field in terms of tackling with his obvious talents, catching the football, covering players, he is a very complete safety or nickel or whatever you want to say he is right now. And you're right. I, I think. As much as this is Troy Dye's defense, Javon Holland might be the best player on that defense right now. And one quick aside on Troy Dye, we were talking about how we were thinking he might break the school uh, record in tackles and pass Tom Graham. Uh, he's currently not anywhere near pace to do so. And guys like Javon Holland and Nick Pickett deserve some credit for that. The way the games against Nevada and Montana went, where you got a lot of backups in, probably also played into it. But after having 15 tackles against Auburn in the opener, he's only had 10 since. He so means he's at 25 right now. Four games into the season, that means, you know, for a 12-game season, he's pacing at about 75 tackles, which is not where you need him to be to get that record. But, again, it doesn't matter, right? It's I mean, well like, below his average. Well, well, well below his average. I mean, he's been at 91, 107, and 109, I think, the, last, the first three years of his career. He's going to have a hard time getting to 100 unless, and this is not impossible at all, he has a game coming up here where he hits 15 to 20 tackles, which, again, isn't insane. He's done that time and time again in his career. But just something to note for those who are – that was one of those little statistical things I think people were eyeing, at least I know I was coming into the season of, man, that stat, that Graham record for tackles felt like it was no one was ever going to hit that. And Travis, or Troy Dye felt like he was in position to maybe do so. And, and you look up now and it's like he's going to have to really pick up the pace to get there. And I think a reason why his tackles are down is because Oregon can afford to take him out of the game earlier in blowouts. Sure. And on top of that, there's simply other guys on the defense that can make the plays and die isn't having to, to cover up so many holes now. Like, I mean, Isaac Slade has, has grown tremendously, uh, in his time under Andy Avalos at linebacker. I think Samson New has, has gone from a guy where as a true freshman and as parts of, as a true sophomore last year, I wondered, like, is he ever going to make an impact at Oregon? And, he has 10 tackles in four games. He has a tackle for loss. He has an interception. He has a forced fumble. Um, you know, Samson New is, has really upped his game as well. We saw MJ Cunningham rotate into the second half of that football game at Stanford um, uh, much earlier than, you know, when guys are, are being pulled, you know, because of the game is over. You know, Cunningham was in there in critical moments because, they've, you know, Oregon staff seems to have, gotten the trust in a couple other guys where die doesn't have to be out there all the time. And that's going to keep die fresh. And that's going to mean, you know, die is going to be healthy for the bigger, you know, bigger, biggest games of this season when they absolutely need him. And, and I think that the depth part that they have right now, and we talked about it on Saturday, I know it is the most impressive thing. And you're right. They've got all those guys, but it's not just linebacker. It's that corner. It's at safety. It's on the defensive line. It's an outside linebacker. Um, they just have, a wealth of options out there. And, and again, credit to not only Andy Avalos for scheming up this defense, but to each of those position groups for developing the talent at those places to the level where there isn't a significant, significant drop off from the starter to a reserve or, or in, even in situations where in certain circumstances, 
the backup guy is better than the starter, you know, maybe against the pass or against the run in certain circumstances where you can rotate guys almost in a little bit of a timeshare where, you know, on one down you want to have Drayton Carberg playing and maybe the next down you want to have Austin Folliou playing or there's might be a, a situation where Mace Funa needs to be on the field and the next play Bryson Young is better suited. I just think there's uh, the depth that's developing there is extremely encouraging and that is going to pay major dividends not just this season, but down the line when when a handful of these guys who are seniors graduate. All right, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the Oz and Audibles podcast. Uh, we'll be right back. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Matt Frame, Eric Scopel here, and um, we teased it at the start of the show, but uh, the Ducks have – they went down to Stanford and they got a convincing victory uh, against the Cardinals, snapped a three-game win streak. They also landed a verbal commitment over the weekend, which is uh, good news for Mario Cristobal and the Ducks. They now hold um, 20 verbal commitments. They're 15th in the country. They're first in the Pac-12. And the latest guy to give a verbal commitment to the Ducks is Braden Swinson, a three-star defensive end from Georgia, um, Chapel Hill High School, six foot four, two forty-five. Picked the Ducks over offers from programs like Florida State, North Carolina, and then another Pac-12 school, Arizona State. Um, I think this is another one of those guys where you look at Swinson and, and you think good player, but his football is his best football is still way ahead of him. High ceiling, you know, a guy that, that with some time could really develop into a really good football player um, with some time to develop. And look, that's kind of seeing what Oregon's freshman class is right now along the D line. They've got time now where they don't have to ask Swinson, you need to be ready day one to play because we need you. They now have the depth established where they can develop this guy. And if he comes in ready to play day one, Oregon's program gets even better. And I, I, I like Swinson's tape. I, I posted the film review up on the site. You can go check it out if you haven't on Duck Territory. Um, but he, he's explosive. He gets, he's, he's very disruptive, which again, you know, I mean, obviously dis- disruptive defensive ends is kind of the name of the game in, in football, right? That's what you want. You want guys who are in the backfield a lot. But for what Andy Avalos does, I think he fits really well. And, and I think he's somebody who will, you know, when he, ends up playing at a high level or when he's really at the, you know, when he reaches his best is when he's going to gain some weight because he's 6'4", 245, that's a little bit lean. But when he's playing at maybe 265, 270 in a couple of years here, and he can keep some of these movement skills because he's pretty explosive. Uh, you see the, the, the straight end speed and he runs down some quarterbacks. He makes some plays in the backfield. I think he's a pretty high upside guy. I think you're right about that. I think he's somebody who um, could end up looking a little bit like a, maybe like a Bryson Young a little bit. Maybe he does play a little outside linebacker or maybe he, keeps his hand in the dirt and gains some weight, and he's uh, closer to a Gus Cumberlander but shorter, you know what I mean, in terms of his his, his style and what, what he does on the football field. So um, a nice depth piece. Again, you like you said, they've got such tremendous talent and young talent at that, at this position group, where you kind of have the luxury to take, I don't want to say a guy who's not ready, but a guy who's best football maybe, you know, maybe after a couple years in the program. And that's, I think, what Swinson is. And, um They've now, I think they've 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 gone out and got some guys at defensive end, you know. And I, I think you you go look at just the collection of talent that they've now um, earned verbal commitments at that position group, and it, it, it you know that the stars don't jump out right. They're all three star guys, but um, you have to be impressed with Swinson, uh, Facey, and Jake Shipley, who are the three guys they've got commitments from. 
they're all similar body types, but all pretty athletic, strong guys who I think, like I said, their best football is ahead of them. And if you get one or two of those guys to pan out in a major way, um, that's just going to be huge for, for this defense going forward. Yeah, the Ducks now have 20 verbal commitments. Not a lot of room left. No. I, I, I think there's four, three, maybe five, depending on what players go pro, what players – uh, transfer out of the football program. And look, I, I think there's a realistic chance now a couple of the, the juniors may go pro than we were expecting. You know, maybe a guy like Thomas Graham or a Diamond Lenore or a DJ, uh, a Jordan Scott, maybe one of those guys, you know, decides to go pro when originally we weren't picking them pegging them as guys of, of candidacy of going pro early as a junior. Uh, I'm not saying I'm hearing that. I'm just saying that, you know, there's some juniors on this team that are playing at a high level, uh, particularly those three, that you at least wonder what are they going to decide when the season is over with. It's a long time until that plays itself out. But nonetheless, you know, maybe some guys that Oregon knows there's a good possibility they could be gone after this season uh, you know, and, and they're starting to allocate for that, but you know, it's, it's, it, there's not a lot of room left. Um, there's a couple five stars still on the table that Oregon is seriously looking at. Um, Keely Ringo is a five star defensive back that's going to be taking an official visit to Oregon, um, later in the, in the season for the Cal, uh, Colorado game on a Friday. Uh, they've got, they're knee deep in with, with Noah Sewell, who's a five star prospect from, um, Utah, who's another linebacker. Uh, so there's still some of the you know highest rated players that that are left still looking at Oregon, but time is running out, space is running out more importantly. And that's probably the best case scenario for Oregon because now they look at, hey, like instead of we need to find 14 commitments during the football season because once it's December, we've got two weeks to sign. So we need, you know, we need to find 14 players. So you figure three players per position, uh, let's just say 15 to make math simple. You know, we need to recruit 45 guys. Oregon right now has room for probably four, four guys, five guys. So they're recruiting probably 15 players right now in, in the, in the 2020 recruiting class. That is much easier to handle from a day to day perspective, plus all their commitments, um, than having to go out and, keep all their commits happy, keep in touch with them, but then also go out and recruit basically 50 more players for a bunch of spots that you still need to fill. I mean, that allows time for Oregon to really hone in and focus on their, you know, their remaining targets. And on top of that, get a jump start for the 2021 recruiting class. And you now that they can make contact with these guys, you know, there's more time and more opportunities to, to reach out to that class and build the, Build the cycle up early and, and have a couple of verbal commitments in 2021 uh, by the time February rolls around. Yeah, no, you're right. You make it easier on yourself when you, you're at 20 commitments right now, and, and now you can host some official visits, like you said, and, and set yourself up for hopefully a, getting basically your entire class signed um, in December. All right, injury front. This is, I think, what a lot of people are curious about as well with Oregon and just kind of where things stand for the Ducks moving forward. Um, we can tell you Juwan Johnson did not travel to this football game, and Jake Hansen did. 
Uh, Hansen is out with what's been officially described as an unofficial injury that he <laughs> continues to be evaluated for. Um, unofficially, I think that reads as a concussion. Um, the fact that he was there, though, I think is, is a clear sign for the Stanford game. Uh, he just was not suited up. Um, I think that is a clear indicator that, hey, he's probably going to be back by the time um, California rolls around in two weeks and that, you know, it was, you know, Oregon was able to dodge a really significant bullet with, with him being out extended period of time. They would not have traveled him if it was, if there was anything serious with him. Um, Juwan Johnson, on the other hand, was not at Stanford and you know, maybe, maybe it's not a big deal and they just, ch- they decided just not to take him. I don't know, but maybe he was an odd man out because of injuries and whatnot. And only a couple guys could go, but. I think it's a much more concerning deal that, you know, a guy that was day to day and was going to be close wasn't even there to try and give it a go day of the game. Especially when Brennan Schooler was there, who was, has been ruled out. We knew he wasn't playing and they brought him on the trip, but Jawan Johnson, who supposedly was going to be 50 50, maybe a game time decision did not travel, right? I mean, that, that sort of speaks to if it was, as if, if he really was a possibility for this game, you would have brought him. And and, and there's so much – we've been dealing with the, the questions about Johnson's health now for about a month, a little over a month, and it's just sort of a, a lack of information. You know, it's been he's, – he's basically been day-to-day now for a month, and it doesn't seem like that can be that accurate given the fact that – Well, it's not accurate. It's not I mean, accurate. It, 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 can't be, it can't be accurate. I mean, yeah, let's just say it. it, it that, that can't be what's happening, right? And, and, and now you've got a bye week here and maybe – Maybe these two weeks are going to be huge for him. You know, these two weeks of practice, basically, before they play uh, Cal on October 5th is, is going to be huge for getting him ready. But you're literally you're legitimately getting to the point now where where it's like there's such a disconnect with what's being said and what seems to be reality to the point where it's like, is he going to play, like, is he playing this season? Like, is, or is he going to play at Oregon? Or is he just going to basically – Sit the whole season. I mean, it, 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 it's a, it begs the question right now. I know that seems crazy because you only played four games and he's quote unquote day to day, but some, something's not right with what's being said and what, what's actually in reality here. Because like we said, you don't, if a guy's day to day and he's a chance to play in a game, you at least bring him to the game. You know what I mean? There's no excuse not to, especially if you're going to bring a, a couple of guys who are clearly out for the game and have them travel. So. Something strange is with that, um, and it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. You know, I, I'm, I'm sure they're hoping to get him back as soon as possible. I know I asked uh, Jacob Breland about the bye week and its values, and he said that they would be getting Brendan Schooler, Michael Pittman, and, and Jawan Johnson uh, back after the bye week. We'll see if that ends up being the case. But that injury thing is is getting more and more confusing by the week, and the sort of lack of clarity of it. The fact that he's still on the first team jet chart, but is not traveling to games now, it's, it's weird. It's definitely strange. Other injuries that we'll be tracking throughout the week and into next week. Micah Pittman, Brendan Schooler, um, two guys that Crystal Ball said before the Stanford game that they were progressing where they would join practice after this week. And this week as in the bye week. So I think. These two guys are close. We know they're close. This isn't me thinking that. Um, you actually got some interesting comments from Breland himself. Yeah. Uh, that sheds even more light on this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He he seems to think that they're going to have both those guys back. And it makes and Juwan Johnson. And Juwan Johnson. And it makes some sense if you look at the timeline. At least we have a timeline for Pittman and Schooler of 
both guys were said to be six to eight weeks out. Um, Schooler was injured like the first week of August. Uh, Pittman was injured the second week of August. You kind of look at that from a best case scenario. Uh, we are getting definitely into that six to eight rank week range for, uh, Schooler. I mean, he's right. He's right in the heart of that right now. Pittman that maybe feels slightly early or, or right kind of on the earlier side, but it, you know, he's somebody that has been talked about like he's really engaged in getting back and getting back early. And, and it would make sense again that you take advantage of this bye week. And, and if you can get those guys back and what Breland says ends up being true and they do have all those guys back, this offense may look quite a bit different the next time we see them when they play California on October 5th. Austin Folio also played in the football game, uh, but this speaks to the depth, I think, of Oregon's defensive line in that he only was out there for maybe one or two series, and then they didn't they didn't play him much. Um, he he missed the Montana game because of an injury, but uh, that he should I would think if you know two weeks to go for Cal, he'll be healthy, you know, to have a bigger role if needed um, against that Cal Bear offense, but. Uh, that's kind of the only other real major injury. I mean, Thomas Graham got hurt against Montana, but he he started that football game and was absolutely terrific in that game, especially against Colby Parkinson, uh, the the six foot seven tight end. Um, no other injuries that we know of have, have emerged from the Stanford game. And ironically enough, you know, you're one of your most physical games of the year, Oregon kind of comes out of it pretty clean. I, that was something that, upon further reflection after the game, I was sort of uh, impressed by was the fact that, yeah, you, you play a physical game, and I, there wasn't even, like, a player that left the field, I don't think, like, yeah. because of injury on Oregon's side. Like, I mean, they, was, they, they were very healthy. And, again, with this bye week coming up and the lack of injuries, again, I'm knocking on wood here because sometimes stuff comes up in the days after or a player, you know, get, tweaks something during the game but doesn't come off the field but is, it feels it and, you know, feels the effects later. It feels like this team is going to be about as healthy as it's been all season when they play California um, in a couple of weeks here. Last but not least, um, or two things here. We need to talk on let's, – let's talk Pac-12 bowl game possibilities. Brett McMurphy of Stadium, he released his bowl projections, and we'll have a full roundup of bowl projections later on the week in, on DuckTerritory.com, if, if not already. Um, but – he has – there's two notes, interesting notes here. He has got Oregon in the Rose Bowl now uh, taking on Ohio State, which would be a preview of the 2020 game because they play each other in Autzen, uh, you know, I think the second week of the season. So that would be an interesting game. Uh, but I think the bigger line here is that the Pac-12 might not have a college football playoff team, but they think sure have a ton of bowl-eligible Bowl potential teams because McMurphy has nine Pac-12 teams in his projections to make a bowl game. And one of the teams that did not make it is a team I don't think anyone was expecting to, to not make a bowl game this season, and that's Stanford. And I'm, I'm buying the fact that they are going to get nine teams in bowl games because you look at it right now, and, and it's an, the unfortunate thing with what this conference does to itself is it cannibalizes itself every season. And again, that's not great for like making the college football playoff and kind of the beauty comp contest that is college football. But what it is good for is having a lot of teams in that middle that are capable because you look at the standings right now and basically every team in the conference has one loss. Um, with, with the exception being, uh, California, which is, which remains the only unbeaten at 4-0. Um, 
Um, but everybody's else got one loss. Most of the teams are three and one or, or, or yeah, are three and one. I think Arizona's two and one. They're also projected to make a bull according to McMurphy. I think I think you're going to see it happen. I think there's going to be a lot of teams with seven, you know, with seven to eight wins in the conference this season. And if they just keep beating up on each other again, that that doesn't help a lot with the national perception. But it, what it does set up is a lot of teams in bowl games. And if those guys are battle tested and they can go out and actually have some success in these bowl games, maybe that changes the perception a little bit. Because I just look at the conference right now and I say, heck, they don't have the top tier talent like the ACC has in Clemson or the SEC has in you can run through three or four teams there. The Big Ten has, or maybe even the Big 12. But they have a lot, a lot of talent in that mid-group. The middle of the conference is very, very strong. And you're seeing that right now with a team like Cal going and beating Ole Miss or Colorado beating Nebraska or Arizona State beating Michigan State on the road. Um, I think this conference is is setting itself up, hopefully, for a much better bowl season. And, again, if there's nine teams in the bowl, in the bowls and they go out and play at a high level, maybe you win six to seven of those games – that changes the perception and helps the conference a great deal because right now the perception is it's the weakest power five conference. And it's not even close. I actually think from top to bottom, this might be the second or third best conference in the country. Really? Yeah. I mean, I mean if you're just going purely depth, I mean, I'm not saying at the top, like at the top, there's no question, right? Like Clemson is better than anyone in the Pac-12, right? SEC probably has three or four teams better than anyone in the top of the Pac-12. Obviously with Auburn beating Oregon in a head-to-head game and Oregon's probably the best team in the Pac-12 right now, or at least I think it is that makes it pretty clear that the Pac-12 isn't, you know, at the top tier as good as the SEC. But, I, like, the middle of the conference is tremendous, and in the middle of some of these other conferences haven't been as impressive. I don't think, at least. Like, Michigan was considered, like, what, the third best team in the Big Ten, and they barely right. beat Army. And they go out, and we watched that Wisconsin game before. They uh, got before throttled. Game, and they look terrible. They just look they, – they don't look very good at all. So, um, you know, and, and – I just look at it and think, I think this conference, no question, the conference at the top can't compete with these top schools right now. But I think the depth of the conference is is better than it's been in a long time. And I'm I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic here, and maybe I'm being too optimistic, that that'll play itself out once bowl, com- bowl season comes out when they do have eight, nine teams playing in bowl games. We were, we were kind of expecting this. Um, we're going to announce it on Monday – uh, Cal will be a five o'clock kickoff against, uh, the Ducks and it'll be broadcast on Fox. Um, this is a, all of a sudden this football game, I think at the beginning of the year, I said this was a throwaway game. This was a game where Oregon was going to throttle them. Great tune up after a Stanford game going into Colorado. They'll be fine. Nothing to worry about. California is legit. And all of a sudden this football game, has gone from, in my mind, one that Oregon should win handedly to one where it it could potentially be a college game day situation because we might have two top 15 teams playing. I mean, yeah, Cal, Cal's ranking surprised me a little bit. They're ranked 15th right now. They jumped, what, like six or seven spots? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, remember, miss. I mean, I remember the press box at Stanford. We were talking about it, and I think it was you, me, and Ryan Thorburn of the Register Guard, and – I was like, there's no way Cal's going to jump eight spots, you know, in, in two weeks to get into the top 15. And they did it almost in one week. Yeah, they did, they did it like basically entirely in one week. And now they're already top 15. And, and Oregon, obviously, in bye week could drop a spot or two. They might move up depending on what happens in front of them, but they're not going to do anything to change their resume. But Cal hosts Arizona State, who lost a heartbreaker to Colorado, um, over the weekend. But if, if Cal takes care of business there, like, 
there, there's a possibility we should say this that Cal could be ranked higher than Oregon coming into that game. Like I think it's a little bit of an outside chance because they'd have to hop what two or three spots, but like don't sleep on that being a game where it's it's like number eleven Oregon against number twelve California, and I t- to me that would be very enticing to College Game Day, especially because College Game Day hasn't been at, and I know it's very early on in the season, but they haven't been at a, a Pac-12 school yet. So I think that's one you have to keep an eye on. And for Oregon right now, especially with what, and we should talk, we should just briefly mention the absurdity of that Washington State-UCLA game. Um, <laughs> but but we had kind of pointed to that Washington State game as like, hey, if Washington State takes care of business, maybe that's the game where game day shows up. It's looking a little bit more and more like this game with Cal might be the home game where Oregon has the best chance to host game day because Colorado blew a, or sorry, Washington State blew what was it a thirty-two point lead midway through the it third was quarter. it was forty-nine to seventeen midway through the third quarter and they lost. Yeah, and I think you scored fifty points in like eighteen minutes, which is just unreal. I mean, that doesn't even compute. I mean, there's a definition of cooing it, and that's going to be listed in the dictionary of sports as cooing it because. There's been multiple times where, like, oh, that's the worst Cougat. Like, that is exactly the term, and that is the worst loss. And quite honestly, I mean, I, we all are, we've all talked about or read about, you know, what's this going to do for Chip Kelly and, and the Bruins? Is this going to set them up to kind of save their season and, and maybe, you know, salvage a, a winning year in six and six or, you know, something, show progress? But I haven't seen a lot of people talk about, like, what are the lingering effects that this is going to have on the Cougars? Like, yeah. I mean, how are they going to respond this week um, against a team that they're going to be playing that's going to be pissed off themselves in Utah? And, and you know, it, it, you could easily see the Cougars drop the game to Utah and all of a sudden go from being a team that was like, hey, they might be a dark horse, you know, playoff team or a dark horse you know, Pac-12 champion team to a team that could all of a sudden string together a lot of losses together because they lost to UCLA. They have to go to Utah. They have to go to Arizona State after that. They play Colorado at home, and then they have to go to at Oregon, at Cal. Like, they they could realistically lose four of their next five games because they're all, you know, four, four of those five are on the road against teams that are defensively the four best teams in the conference. Oregon's one. ASU is two, Utah is three, and Cal is four. All of this is setting up for best case for Oregon where they're going to be playing some of these teams here. If they, I mean, you look at it this way. They've already beaten Stanford. Washington, Washington State already have losses. They go beat Cal this week. They have the edge there. They could, they could put this thing away almost. Oregon could. And I know this is like jumping ahead and they have, Oregon actually needs to go win these football games. But theoretically, if Oregon, if Oregon could put the division away, by the time they beat, if they beat Washington State, if they win at, if they beat Cal, they beat Colorado, they win at Washington, and then they beat Washington State at home, they're going to have basically the, they'd have the, they'd have the division wrapped up, you know, because the other teams are all already with losses, basically. Everybody with Cal. Everybody with, yeah, but if Oregon were to beat Cal in that game, sure. uh, they, they would have the tiebreaker plus a one to two game advantage over everybody, and this could be a thing where Oregon's like five and zero. Oh, impact 12 play and it's like oh well they're going to be in the division who's going to finish second i mean unless barring a huge implosion um to, to end the season where they could even still probably lose to at usc at arizona state beat or arizona and oregon state at home which should be gimme games be seven and two 
and be, you know, and, and, and have, you know, and fully win the conference and, and maybe to win the division by a game or two. Yeah. I mean, ASU, or California goes on the road or at home, excuse me. They play at home against Arizona State this weekend. You know, they could potentially lose that game. It wouldn't surprise me. Um, you know, that would position their first loss in conference play. And then if Oregon beat them, that would be two. Uh, they also have to play at Utah later on in the year. And then you look at, um, Washington's schedule and they've got to play the Trojans this weekend at home. Like it wouldn't surprise me there if USC won that football game. Uh, but they also have to play Oregon. So that's another potential game that, you know, you, Washington could lose. And then Washington State, like you said, like they play at Utah, they play at ASU. And then they play Oregon. Like there's a, there's a, you're right. There's a legitimate chance that after the Ducks play the Cougars, uh, on October 26th, there could be a deal where Oregon has games, uh, against USC, Arizona, Arizona State, and Oregon State, and they need to win two of them to win the Pac-12 North. And to me, that feels very, very doable. Although we should mention USC. I came away pretty impressed with how they beat Utah uh, on Friday night, but I, I agree. I think that, you know, and again, we're getting way ahead here because we're jumping down the line here, but it is favorable that those four games we're talking about, if they win, three of those four are at home. The lone road game is in Seattle, and you know they're going to be fired up for that game. If they were to go 4-0 in that sequence and be 5-0 in conference, um, they'd be in an extremely good shape going into the back end of that season. I mean, think about Oregon's schedule at the beginning of the year, um, you know, it was, oh, man, they got to go to Stanford. They've got to go to Washington. They've got to go to USC. This is going to be a real difficult schedule because they've got to go on the road to play their best teams. And through four weeks, I think Washington is still probably one of the, you know, the toughest teams that they have to play. Absolutely. USC is still there. But all of a sudden, Call her, uh, Cal, California, you know, they might be the second toughest team left on the schedule. And that's a home game. That's, you know, you're lucky for Oregon there. And then a road game that many people, I will tip my hat here. I, I said this was going to be the game that they would lose. The one game they'd lose all year was at Arizona State, but a game that no one thought about, you know, outside of a very few group, small group people thought ASU was going to be an easy win. All of a sudden that game, They've got a loaded defense, you know, and it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if that game's close at all as well because yeah. of how good the, the Sun Devil defense is. So that's why, you know, everything doesn't always play out like it does on paper and that, you know, games like Cal, games like uh, Arizona State were viewed as throwaway, win, easy, winnable games for the Ducks now carry much more importance and much more difficulty. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And in the conference, like we said earlier, it's, it's, I think there's not, there's not a lot of games you look on the schedule that are like total gimme games. I really think the, I mean, Colorado just beat that Arizona State you're talking about team yep. you know, over the weekend. And, uh, that, that's not going to be an easy game either. You can't sleep on that game on, on October 11th. So I think the, the home games against Arizona and Oregon State certainly feel at this stage like very winnable games, but the rest of them, you're right. Those are going to be dogfights. But if Oregon can take care of business in, in, you know, let's say five of those seven games or whatever it is, or four of those six games, I think they're going to be in really, really good shape to win the, the division and you know, position themselves to play for a Rose Bowl. All right, that's going to do it for us on the Austin Audible's podcast for this Monday edition. Thanks for listening to the show. Go to DuckTerritory.com for more. And until we see you or talk to you on Wednesday for Mailbag Wednesday, see you later. Adios, amigos.